Hello, Duncan Green here with the uh, weekly roundup of blogs and posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, it's going to be a short one this week. Last week was a marathon because I had a catch up. This week I've just got three posts to talk through. Uh, it's partly just because it's too damn hot um, and everything's slowing down for the British summer. And I have a perfect solution to the extreme heat in London, which is I'm going to Scotland on holiday at the weekend where it will probably rain and be cold uh, for the whole two weeks. So I'll be back um, at the end of this month. But before I go, here's the last three um, posts of the, uh, uh, that have been up. First was a links I liked, my sort of the things I've noticed on social media and sent around on Twitter and so on. Um, a really nice piece on Africa's a country, which is a fantastic name for a really good website. Do sign up if you haven't already. Um, and this is by Emeka Joseph Nwankwo. And it's about the dilemma facing African writers um, uh, if they because they're influenced either by the the white gaze or by their reaction to the white gaze. And he sort of says, we, yeah, the African writers have to free themselves from both. And here's a nice example of the way he writes. An African writer is either writing poverty porn or overrepresenting by telling stories of a successful latte drinking middle class family melodrama. And so he's arguing that you've just got to get rid of all that stuff and write it like you see it and get away from the white gaze. Really nice piece. And then completely different number crunching from the World Bank on remittances, which really caught my eye. In 2020, remittance flows to low and middle income countries are expected to drop by around 20 percent. What that means is that those flows from migrant workers to the poorest countries in the world are going to drop by about $110 billion. That's how much they're going to drop by. So that's like taking two-thirds out of the global aid budget in terms of the, the, the amount. Um, and it's hardly been noticed. It's going to be a really big issue. And anything Western governments and donors can do to help keep remittances flowing would probably be at least as important, probably more so, than whatever they do on aid. But there were lots of other things on links I liked. It was a, it was a, it was a big list this week. <clears throat> Next piece was by Graham Teskey, who is um, an aid veteran, I think it's fair to say. He's had a lot of time at DFID. He's been at the Australian uh, government, and now he's at a, consultant, a consultancy in, in Canberra. And he writes, his speciality is governance, that, that weird aid industry term for politics, government, institutional reform, thinking about the politics of how things work or don't work and how you can fix them. And he wrote a piece which he sent me, and I, uh, which I really wanted to publish, on, on the impact of COVID on people like him who have been trying for decades to get aid donors and others to take governance seriously and without a great deal of success. So here's just a couple of quotes from him. COVID has changed both the focus and the urgency of the governance discourse more in the last six months than anything else has done over the last decade. Governance practitioners are now being challenged to transition from a general way of interpreting the world, a view that has clear elements at every level and in every context, to a much more specific and focused set of questions regarding the immediate here and now COVID implications of that way of interpreting the world. Questions that were rather peripheral in donor-led development circles, the ones with which I am most familiar, now seem to be central. Questions about what determines the effectiveness of state responses to COVID-19. What is happening to state accountability as elections are postponed and due process in procurements are sidestepped? 
What is happening to state authority as inequalities are increasingly laid bare? What is happening to the legitimacy of states as citizens lose faith in the fairness and competence of governments? Great set of questions. Um, so he's basically arguing, saying that, you know, all those people have been working on governance over the decades. Now is your moment. Either you come up with useful answers to these kind of much more pressing questions from donors about the specifics of COVID and the politics of COVID, or you should shut up. Because if you can't make the most of this critical juncture, you're wasting your time. And he, he, he fleshes this out, this out in two rather complex, I have to say, tables. Um, one table is on five questions before COVID. And one is on five questions after COVID. And, there, and, it, and, and it's talking about the questions that are asked by practitioners. So just to give you a flavour, I mean, it's, it's really dense. It's very rich. And I think it deserves close study. But a flavour... One example from before COVID, how can we assess the institutions and interests that make up the modern nation state? And that breaks down into kind of questions like, how can I know what sort of political settlement is in place? And how can I tell when it's changing? Can I ever hope to influence elite deals and make them more pro-poor? So those were the kind of questions governance people were asking before COVID. Now, an example, what influences the extent to which states' responses are led by reason, evidence and data. And the kind of detailed questions that governance people are asking is, how can I explain differing levels of acceptance by political elites of the science of the pandemic? That question will resonate with lots of people in the US, in the UK and everywhere else, I think. Do I think this means there will be an increased demand for evidence in other non-COVID aspects of public policy? Oh, good luck with that. But these are really, yeah, really interesting questions and I think it repays study. Then the, the last of my three pieces this week, um, I, often, I don't often find, make the time or get the time to read the Guardian long read. So every day the Guardian uh, posts something much longer than its usual articles. Um, and there was one it had recently on the evolution of Extinction Rebellion. And I thought, OK, you know, it's a summer lull. Let's put some time into reading this. I thought it was really good, but it was 5,000 words. So I boiled it down to a fifth of that. Um, and I think I'm going to use it for my LSE course on activism. Tom Kirk and I are just doing our reading list for, for next year. And I thought it was really good, a bit UK-centric, but it pulls together a number of features on the rise of, of new social movements. So, um, And some of those features are the visionary leader, in this case a guy called Roger Hallam, who in 2017 had this vision of a sort of mass uprising around, around uh, uh, climate, the climate crisis. The importance of early followers, a woman called Gail Bradbrook and 15 people who got together in Stroud uh, at the beginning of all this and sort of forged what became Extinction Rebellion. The importance of branding. They took ages to decide on the term and the Extinction Rebellion was rather unpopular at the beginning. I think it's an absolutely amazing name and it's totally got brand recognition. It means people, it's, it, people know that it's important. They know that it's urgent. They know that it's a rebellion. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant name. And then the, the, the importance of repetition, something that policy wants get very fed up with, having to say the same thing over and over again. Extinction Rebellion produced a PowerPoint, which they called The Talk, which I th sounds a bit like Al Gore's PowerPoint that he went around doing over and over again on climate change a decade ago. Um, and, and the main activity for a long time was giving The Talk to groups up and down Britain and, and then increasingly over, you know, in other countries too to just build the awareness and get the momentum going. And then suddenly, 
takeoff and takeoff got way ahead of strategy they were they were they were riding a tiger they'd had this enormous uh, success in april 2019 um, and the movement grew really really fast and they didn't have systems in place and, and there was a, a lot of improvisation and and chaos uh, and that's inevitable i think as time went on tensions started to emerge around tactics so you had within extinction rebellion as you do within many social movements a tension between the people who wanted to do outsider tactics stop things you know um break things make a noise really get into the face of decision makers and get onto the telly and make a big noise about this and say this system is so broken we can't fix it and people have said actually we can fix bits of it and that's an important objective insiders so this tension between insider and outsider tactics grew and grew and in the end led to the charismatic founder leaving last month in july hallam roger hallam stated that he would be devoting himself to a new direct action organization an anti-political party called beyond politics and that highlights the fact that extinction rebellions had a very difficult relationship to formal politics during the uk election campaign uh, they they did not mobilise behind Labour's uh, position, even though Labour had a, quite a strong position on a Green New Deal. Um, and instead, they preferred to target all three main parties with hunger strikes. And here's, I think, where the, the writer in The Guardian was having a bit of fun. People dressed in bee costumes under the slogan, Beyond Politics. Yeah. OK, well, we'll leave that there. There were some... In response to that, I asked people for more links on Extinction Rebellion. There's some great links in comments. There are some people saying, actually, you got this wrong. There wasn't a single visionary leader. The group of 15 ran it from the beginning. Um, he's just made a bigger noise and bigged himself up too much. Um, so there's, you know, these things. Success has many fathers and mothers and Extinction Rebellion is no is no exception. But a really interesting piece. Uh, and I think I'm definitely going to make Extinction Rebellion a case study for my students. On that note. Have a great couple of weeks. I will return bedraggled, wet and refreshed from Scotland and talk to you then. Bye.